The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Hey. And today we have a special guest, Mr. Tim Eldred, comic artist, storyboard artist, and animation director. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hello, world. And the world is happy to hear from you, too. (laughs) All right, so, Tim, um, why don't we start out by uh, learning a bit about you. So, where did you grow up? I grew up in the... uh... The Midwestern state of Michigan. Okay, right next door to us, in fact. Yes, uh, in fact, um, only a, a few hundred miles away. And I visited Canada quite often. I still have family there, too. My condolences. <laughs> but at least we have good maple syrup, so there is that. Oh, uh, the best. So where in Michigan are you from? A city called Grand Rapids, which is on the west side of the state. Yep. Um, But I also moved around a bit and lived in some cities on the east side around Detroit and Ann Arbor. Okay. And uh, that's where I was when my comic book career began. Okay. Well, tell us about your comic book career then. How did you get into comics? Uh, Well, I was a a science fiction geek like any other science fiction geek as a kid. Mm -hmm. I grew up on Star Wars and Star Blazers and whatever I could get my hands on that looked great. You know, Marvel Comics Mm -hmm. was... A, a big part of my childhood and uh gradually i uh found anime thanks mm-hmm. to speed racer battle of the planets and then star blazers right right and that uh that blend of things led me into wanting to create stories of my own mm. and being in michigan away from the, the nerve centers of entertainment mm-hmm. in new york <laughs> and uh georgia and Texas and Los Angeles and all the other big places. Mm-hmm. Um, the only means I had to entertain myself was to create comics. Right. Uh, all it took was a pencil, a paper, and imagination. I didn't need a camera. I didn't need a recorder. I didn't need any mm-hmm. technical equipment at all. Uh, so all of the um, the adventures that blended together in my head came out through my fingers onto paper from a very young age. Uh, I could draw uh, even when I was very small, um, and my mom was a little worried about that. She tells a story sometimes mm-hmm. about how when I was maybe two or three, I had, in, even then, an incredible focus mm-hmm. and concentration. And at one point, she went to uh, the doctor and asked if that was something to worry about, and he said, <laughs> absolutely not. Don't you interfere with that at all. That is a gift, and that's going to take him far. Wow, that was an awesome doctor. Uh-huh. <laughs> you owe him money. <laughs> <laughs> I may have him to thank for my entire career. Yeah. Uh, so I used that gift to create stories just to entertain myself based on the stuff I like. Um, I made original comic stories. Mm-hmm. I made Star Wars comic stories 
various things that I loved, you know, Marvel superheroes, Six Million Dollar Man. Well, I saw on Facebook you posted a bunch of stuff that seemed to be based on the Shogun Warriors. Yes, hmm. that's the next one I was getting to. The Shogun Warriors was, at the time, mm-hmm. as far as I knew, just a, a series of toys right. that looked really, really cool. Yes, they did. Uh, I had no idea where they came from, just that they looked awesome, and they had this weird sort of alien writing on them. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, anytime I found a a picture of one of those toys or saw one of those toys in the store, I would sketch it or I would clip it out or I would save it, you know, in -hmm. some way so that I could draw these things. And then I made up stories about them, which essentially turned them into Marvel superheroes in space. Right. And just went for months and months and months and created this huge saga, you know, this epic space adventure featuring the Shogun Warriors as individual characters. And then much later, of course, I would find out that they were not characters at all. They were inanimate objects from Japanese cartoons that characters would jump into and pilot. Mm -hmm. So they were essentially vehicles shaped like humans with all this, you know, armor and weapons and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that strange alien writing on them was a Japanese logo showing their name. Yeah. yeah. So Mazinger Z, for example, I had no idea what that looked like in Japanese when I was a little kid. I just, mm. I thought, wow, they really went the extra mile, these toy designers, and made up a whole alien language to go with them. <laughs> well, that does describe Japanese pretty well, actually. <laughs> but uh you know regardless of that it just increased my fascination with them mm. and uh when i found out what the actual truth was uh it opened up a whole new world of entertainment so the um outcome of all this was that i developed the skills on my own to create stories in a comic book format and then when i got old enough to start going out to comic book conventions i found that there were publishers there and, mm. sh- and so I showed my work around wherever I could find someone who was interested in looking at it and uh, got tips from them and some rudimentary training. Mm. <clears throat> I also found an actual professional comic artist living in Grand Rapids, Michigan oh. when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. His name was Mike Gustavich. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you, do you and, know him, Don? Uh, yeah, because he, um, he did a lot of game stuff, too, like for uh, different role-playing games. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he had a comic book of his own in, I think, the late 70s or early 80s called The Justice Machine. Yeah. Yes, I remember yeah. them, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there was a supplement by Palladium Books called The Justice Machine for their Heroes Unlimited game, I believe. Yeah. All yeah, right. He, he did the art, and I think he did some of the writing for it, too. Ah, okay, that makes sense. So, okay, there we go. Yeah, it was a magazine-sized independent comic, very rare for its time. And he was the creator and the artist, and uh, I met him when he uh, teamed up with a local art school in Grand Rapids to offer classes in comic book production. Okay. And one day my mom found a a listing for that in the newspaper and showed it to me and said, interested? And I said, you bet I am. (laughs) Because I, I could figure out how to draw a comic book, but there was still a whole layer of technical expertise that I just had no idea about in terms of how to compose a frame and how to balance pictures on a page and how to create a montage to tell a story and what kind of tools the professional used, 
what kind of paper the professionals used. I didn't have any clue uh, before I took that class about any of that stuff. And so Mike Gustavich kind of became a hero to me. Hmm. And uh, it's been a really long time since I've seen him anywhere, but Mm -hmm. I have him to thank for my very early exposure to the professional side of the business. So anyway, it took about 10 years from the time I started showing my work to publishers Mm -hmm. until I actually got a bite. Well, hold on. Uh, Was was there any advice that you got from publishers back then that actually really stuck with you and uh, kept you going? Yeah, the main thing was to to upgrade the tools I was using Mm -hmm. to make sure that it would reproduce properly. Right. To draw at the proper size. I was just accustomed to drawing on regular... Uh, eight and a half by 11 paper because right. that's all I could mm-hmm. get. But these guys were drawing on artboard and they, the image size was quite a bit larger because it could be reduced down. Of course, yeah. And it, it would pick up precision and, and look more intricate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a comic book standard. I think Kirby drew, was it double size, I believe? Sure. Yeah, if you see some of his originals, they're like the size of posters. Some of yeah. Them. Sorry, I was just curious if, if you'd gotten any big tips from the professionals that we could pass along. Well, there were always tips about figure drawing. Mm. Um, that was probably the one that came up the most often, to uh, learn the fundamentals of the human figure so right. that you, you can then learn how to pose the body in ways that are dynamic and interesting. Right. Hmm. <clears throat> um, composition is a huge one because mm-hmm. you have to think in, uh, in segments. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a panel an individual panel, which is going to have a specific composition that needs to be pleasing to the eye and also kind of push the reader forward into the next panel. Mm-hmm. And so then you've got to think, you know, step back from that and think on a, on a wider level, how did these panels flow together? Mm-hmm. And then a wider level from that, what does an entire page look like? And uh, is there an element on that page that stands out and makes the entire page into a composition? And then how does that relate to the page that's next to it? So that when you open a book and you see two pages side by side, what kind of impact does that give you? And then there are all sorts of tips and tricks about flowing a story from one page to the next so that you have you, you work with compression in some cases where you squeeze a lot of information into a small space or expansion right. where you, you purposefully take something that may happen in a split second on, on a film and expand it out over several drawings. Knowing the difference between those two is the the knack of the entire storytelling process in graphic arts. And um, the more you know, uh, the more you want to know. And right. the more you want to study how other people solve these problems. Wow. And then you... Mm-hmm. Then you go from one culture to the next. You know, Americans will solve the problem this way. Canadians would solve it this way. Japanese artists may solve it this way. British artists may solve it another way. Right. And then there are, you know, European comics that have their own approaches too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a lifetime education that, that will never end. Yeah, and yeah, I believe it. That's interesting that you actually re- structure your response as problem solving. You see comics as a way of solving problems. Sure. The, the main problem is how do you communicate this story to another human being right. in a way that they will understand and appreciate? And, you know, problem is, is one word for it. Challenge is another word. Right. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but human beings are instinctive problem solvers. That's how we got to where we are mm-hmm. on the evolutionary scale. And so we're all hired, we're hardwired to do that. And mm-hmm. We've been communicating stories to each other for as long as we've had language. Right. And so this is another aspect of that. Hmm. 
I can definitely see that. I think that's a good point. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, sorry to interrupt. Uh, so as you were saying, so you so it took about ten years before you got your first real actual comic book job or actual published work. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to go to a pretty big comic book convention once a year in Chicago. Okay, uh, it was called the Chicago Comic Con, and um, I don't know if it's still going on. I know they do something there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back in the uh, early to mid '80s, when I was going, it was the only place I could get to see all the publishers in under one roof. Right. Um, there were events in New York City and then, of course, the San Diego Comic-Con. But Chicago was accessible to me from Michigan because I could drive there. Right. And every year I would go back and I would uh, either meet a new publisher or see the same editor who I'd met the year before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd pull him aside and show him the latest work and he'd give me some new tips and... So I sort of built up a little network of people that I would just see once a year, and um, they would start to recognize me when I came up. Oh, it's that guy right, again. Yeah. What's, what's he got this time? <laughs> My big break finally came in the year 1988 when Dark Horse was there. Mm-hmm. And I'd read a lot of Dark Horse comics. It was pretty early in their uh, publishing life. But I liked what they were doing and where they were going. And they had a comic book that really appealed to me called Mecca. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember Mecca. And it was mm-hmm. it was one of the first actual uh, giant robot comics created by American writer and artist for American fans using uh, some of the tropes of Japanese animation. I think the and, first one, well, okay, unless we, okay, the first one would probably be uh, Marvel's Shogun Warriors comic. And sure. then the second mm-hmm. one I thought was Dynamo Joe. That could be, that could be. Yeah, and then Mecha would, I was a big fan at this time as well of, of uh, <laughs> those comics. And so I remember Mecha as well. I think it was the third. I think it's third. Oh, wait, uh, unless we count the Robotech comic that they were putting out. Sure. But in terms of original American stuff, it would probably be the second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably the second. Sorry. That's fine. The, the timeline is a little fuzzy to me because I didn't take in everything. But right, yeah. I definitely noticed Mecca. Mm-hmm. And um, I approached Dark Horse at the time about publishing uh, an original story that I was working on right. called, called Broid. And they oh, had published okay. Mecca and they had robots in their strip and I had robots in mine so I thought, oh, okay, maybe they're interested in another robot comic mm-hmm. uh, they weren't because one was <laughs> enough for them at mm-hmm. the time wow. however uh, even if your original idea gets turned down it still is valid as a tryout piece mm-hmm. you know, a portfolio sample and so the creator of Mecca whose name was Randy Stradley mm-hmm decided, hey, I think this guy could continue Mecca for me. Right. Uh, There was a period of time where they had stopped the original series, but they wanted to revive it as a single strip in an anthology comic they were going to do called Mayhem. Oh, okay. And so he was looking for someone to pick it up and take it over. Right. And it was, I was there at the right place at the right time when he was trying to make that decision and I became his choice to do that. Wow. Yep. And I, that would have been the summer of 1988. That's when we first met. And I th- probably started working on it in the fall. And my job was to write the script, uh, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I offered to design pages for it. The artist was going to be a different guy that they already knew named Harrison Fallen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Harrison would take my script and my layouts and interpret them in his own style. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being a short feature, maybe six or eight pages, mm-hmm. something like that. Maybe ten, I can't remember. Right. And I think it lasted about four issues right. in Mayhem. And it was one of three uh, comic strips in there. Right. And so when that came out, either late 88 or early 89, that was my first professional published work. Oh, I see. I didn't know that Mecha continued, actually. I knew I have the original run somewhere in my collection, but I had no idea that it had continued. Interesting. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And so um, one of the rumors is when you break through the door, Mm -hmm. um, you're in. And when you have a published project under your belt, you become much more attractive to other publishers. Mm -hmm. And so the next year, I went back to the Chicago Comic Con in 1989, and I had Mecca to my credit, and I still had my original series, uh, Mm -hmm. which was called Broid. Broid, yes. Mm -hmm. And this time I took it to a different publisher called Malibu. Mm Mm-hmm. And they were of interest to me because of an imprint they had called Eternity Comics. Mm-hmm. It was one of three, I think, at the time. And they were publishing Ninja High School. Right. Mm-hmm. Which told me instantly, okay, they're at least aware of Japanese cartoons and comics. Right, right. <laughs> and they've, you know, they've been softened up. So maybe they'd be interested in something else in that genre. Mm-hmm. So I showed them Broid. And just to give you a little background on that, Broid is a science fiction story that I decided to just make up uh, on my own time for my own entertainment, because that's what I was used to. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it happened because in 1987, I moved across the state of Michigan from Grand Rapids into the Detroit area. And uh, I didn't have a lot of friends there. I moved there to take a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had a lot of spare time when I wasn't hanging around with anybody and I thought, Hey, why not just make up a story? Give myself a project because mm-hmm. projects are the driving force of my life. Even if they have no place to go, mm-hmm. I've got to work on a project. It's like, uh, it's an obsession. I have to use that word. Right. Um, I've, you know, stuff is constantly churning around in my head and demanding to be let out. Yep. And, um, so I started working on this science fiction story set in a post-apocalyptic future with giant robots. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's that's a mix that I haven't seen before. Plenty of robot stories, plenty of post-apocalyptic stories, but I haven't seen anybody combine the two. So maybe I could find that, uh, that ground and do something with it. Mm-hmm. And so over several months, I started uh, brainstorming this enormous tale that would take 12 issues to tell, and I thought maybe someday I could find someone to pick it up and publish it. But for the time being, I was just going to proceed on my own, mm-hmm. not wait for permission, just do it to my own specs. And so I literally created and roughed out 12 issues mm-hmm. of this story from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And what I then had was a giant package to carry to the Chicago Comic Con mm-hmm. with me, you know. 12 issues of content, all done. Right. You know, ready to be drawn at full size and, and inked and lettered and all that stuff. And so when I barged up to the uh, Eternity Comics table, 
at the Chicago Comic Con. And I looked at the editor, his name is Chris Holm, and I said, hey, look what I've got. And his eyes went wide, and right. he because he had never seen anything like that before. He was <laughs> everybody, and I've been in their position too since then. Everybody's used to seeing a big portfolio case come up, mm-hmm. and somebody will open it up, and then there'll be pinups in there of Batman and Spider Man and right. Darth Vader and whoever else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very seldom do people actually create comic book pages on their own, and almost never do they create entire comic books on their own Mm. and so at the time anybody who did that stood out from the crowd because they obviously had some uh, sense of what it took Mm -hmm. to get beyond the pinup and start to produce actual full comic books right Mm. and so he was really interested he couldn't say yes to it on the spot but he said you know it just so happens that we've got another project coming up soon and I need an artist for it whose skills are similar to yours. You know, you mm. show you're interested in anime and you know what Japanese comics look like and you obviously know how to make a comic book. So uh, very soon we expect to sign a contract for a comic book version of Lensman. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I'd like to consider you for that. Now, had you uh, actually read Lensman at this point, like the original books? No, but I knew all about the anime. Uh, mm-hmm. I had seen the uh, the animated feature film right. that was made in 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while there, uh, it was one of my favorites. It sort of fell out of favor after a while because there's not a whole lot of substance to it. It's fun to watch, but there's not a whole lot to walk away with when you're done. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was one of those things that I collected and really liked for a while and then put away as other things flowed in. Right. So I said, hey, yeah, I know Lensman. That's a lot of fun. And he, he asked me, well, do you think you could draw it? And I said, absolutely, I could draw it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, what else was I going to say? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's what came to pass. Within a month of that convention, they'd signed the contract. It was to adapt the Lensman anime series into comic books mm-hmm. and publish them through mm-hmm. Eternity. And I, I don't remember if I did a sample page or not. Um, I probably did because that was usually the way you did it back then. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, they'll they'll say, yes, you can have the job, but first I need to see how you're going to handle these characters right. to make sure you're a good fit. Mm-hmm. And so we went through whatever process that was, and I got it. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly, out of the blue, I was a professional working comic book artist with a monthly assignment. Awesome. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I heard bells ringing in my head every day. That was just heavenly. I bet. <laughs> now, can I ask, what how, I, how much did that pay back then? Um, certainly not enough to live on now. That's what I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Eternity Comics didn't pay that much in general. The bigger publishers had a lot more money to work with, right. so they had uh, page rates. You mm-hmm. know, They would offer 100 bucks a page or 200 or, or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So if you went to Marvel or DC, you could get a really good rate, depending on... Uh, the sales of a comic and uh, what sort of name value you had. Right. I was not in a position to negotiate my own deal at all. And so I took their terms, which was an advance on royalties. Right. Mm -hmm. So they would, uh, they made it possible to publish black and white comics on the cheap by going with a royalty model. Okay. Saying that the the artist is going to get 
uh, let's say, 20% of the revenue that we get back. After we've paid for all our expenses and after the distributors and the stores have taken their cut, we have the net uh, return and you get 20% of that. And they could anticipate ahead of time about what that would be. And so they right. would offer you a certain dollar amount up front right. so that you didn't, didn't have to work for free and wait for the money. Right. Mm. So I think it was somewhere between 600 and $1,000 per issue right. at the time. Mm. might have been a little more than that, but uh, it was still a decent amount of money. Mm-hmm. I couldn't quite quit my job yet, but it was more than halfway there. Right. Mm. And so... When I started working on Lensman and they saw that I was reliable and mm-hmm. that I could meet a deadline, their next step was to say, okay, now we're going to publish Broid. Right. Mm. And so that doubled my comic book income and it allowed me to quit the day job. Mm-hmm. And then I was full-time freelance working at home, hmm. which was a lifetime goal. Of it was course. Incre- it, it was so much fun. <laughs> um, and it was very good timing, too, because uh, my daughter was born that year in the summer of 1989. So that let you spend more time at home with your daughter as well. Yeah, I became a, a, a working dad at home. That's awesome. Yeah, and her, her mom could go out and get a, a job, and uh, we didn't have to worry about daycare because I could be there all day long. Mind uh, you, having a crying baby in the background doesn't make <laughs> for the best um, work environment. <laughs> well, you've got to make allowances for family, of yeah. course. Yeah. Uh, Kids and dogs. But uh, some of my fondest memories are having her sitting right next to me in her little chair. And she's, you know, gurgling and playing with stuff. And I'm right there next to her drawing comic books. That's huh. great. And so what I uh, worked myself into was a schedule where I was doing a comic book every two weeks because mm-hmm. I had two monthly stories that I had to finish in a, on a four-week cycle. Right. And I would send those out every two weeks like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, how and long did Lensman last? The first series went for six issues. Mm-hmm. There was a companion series to that that I did several months later called Galactic Patrol. Mm-hmm. And the gimmick there was to take some of the characters out of the first comic and move them into the second and have them on a parallel adventure. And mm-hmm. then they connected up at the end right oh, okay good yeah, idea so those those two ran concurrently and uh the year after that we started a regular series i i can't remember what the title was warriors of the lens maybe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think that went for six or eight issues but at that point the sales were no longer supporting it right mm-hmm. and so they had to uh put an end to that series uh, but by that time i had all of that work behind me, and I had two separate Broid series right. that well, ran four issues apiece. Why don't you tell us about what happened with Broid? Yeah, hmm. that's a little unfortunate. That was, uh, that was a real triumph for me to not only get the Lensman thing going, but to have an original mm-hmm. story that somebody trusted me to, to produce uh, within my first year as a professional. Right, yeah. Uh, um, but they didn't have a lot of money to promote it. And the comic book industry was getting bigger and bigger by the year because a lot more people were figuring out how to publish independently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot more competition. And when I, got the, um, when I got the sales numbers in, or the ordering numbers rather, for Broid number one, mm-hmm. uh, they came in lower than what it was going to take for that book to turn a profit. 
Right. Because mm. we, you know, they, we go back to that royalty model. Mm-hmm. That book has to make a certain amount of money to, uh, number one, pay all its bills, and number two, uh, cover the advances that the artist got. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, hopefully pay them some more after that. And it didn't mm. meet the minimum to cover that. Right. And so they said, all right, well, we, you've got uh, issue four in production right now. That's going to be the last one. Right. Mm. And so that was a big blow. Yeah, I bet it was. Um, so I pushed a little bit and prodded a little bit, and they found a way to continue publishing, uh, which was kind of sketchy at the time but everybody was had convinced themselves that a number one of something is always going to sell a certain amount because there's <laughs> you know that speculator drive that says i've got to have the first issue and so if you constantly put out number ones you're constantly feeding that drive right mm-hmm. yeah and so they said well one way we could salvage this is you start on Broid issue five, but we renumber it. We give it a new name, and then we start over with number one. Hmm. And so that became uh, the second Broid series. It was called Shatterpoint, mm-hmm. and it picked up exactly where the first one left off. But it had the inherent problem of being a continuation rather than a right. new story. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't really convince anybody. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> So um, I got to do four more issues, but it still didn't get me to the end because mm-hmm. I had 12. Right. And mm-hmm. so to this day, um, all I've ever been able to finish is eight issues, and right. the other four are just still sitting in the archive. Well, you should hmm. find some time someday and actually finish them. I mean, you can stick them online. Find some what? Find some time, you know, <laughs> that mystical thing. <laughs> I've never heard that word. Okay. Except, <laughs> sorry, except sorry to bring it up. an emergency. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, they're still sitting there, mm. and there's still a voice way in the back of my head saying, draw me, draw me. But <laughs> in the time since then, I've drawn so many other things, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm constantly coming up with new stuff, and that right. that mm. interests me more than stuff that I developed you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, of course. Mm. I'm not saying that I'll never get back to it, and I'm certainly much more able to uh, take it to the finish line now that there is the internet and I could make a website out of it. Right. But there are a lot of other things I want to do. Mm, I can Mm. understand that. Plus you have have to resist that urge to redraw it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that would be a a given. (laughs) I I could not uh, live with myself if I didn't start it over. And then, you know, I couldn't resist the urge to rewrite and redesign. So then you're talking about a massive undertaking. Yeah, which is probably going to be 96 issues worth of material. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So we have, uh, so Broid has been canceled, unfortunately. um, And uh, Lensman's not doing so well. What happened next? Well, Lensman carried me through 1990. Mm -hmm. And um, when that started to look like it wasn't going to continue... Uh, my friends at Eternity said, well, we want to keep you working because Mm -hmm. we know what you can do. And most importantly, we know you can meet a deadline Mm -hmm. because that is still one of the hardest obstacles a new artist has to overcome. Hmm. Even if you can draw like the wind, you know, even if you can draw anything somebody wants you to, you still have to meet a monthly deadline. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Because they have to publish a monthly product. And if they can't, Mm -hmm. then... There's a whole cascade of problems 
that become very difficult to solve very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, so the fact that they, they had somebody who, you know, maybe wasn't doing the best work of his career yet, but could still meet a deadline meant they wanted to keep me working. Good. And that served me well because the more work I got, the better I got at it. Mm-hmm. You know, I could find new ways to draw things. Um, or I would find a, a new solution to a problem that I could never solve before, just out of experience alone. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things about that time was that I was working about six months ahead of publication. Right. So in other words, whenever a comic book came out, it was something I had drawn six months earlier. And whenever I would leaf through it for the first time, I'd go, ew. <laughs> You know, why was I drawing it that way? Right. That looks terrible. <laughs> but then what you realize after that is, oh, that looks bad to me now because I'm no longer drawing it that way. Which is, you know? that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. And so even it, it's sort of like looking back to your high school yearbook picture mm-hmm. and being thankful you don't look like that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and with that comes the realization that you've overcome the obstacles that uh, happened since then. Yep, And so it was always a negative and a positive to see my work in print. So what was this new series that they wanted to put you on? Captain Harlock. Ah, yep, and that would be the series that truly introduced me to your work. Indeed. Yeah. Um, Captain Harlock was, uh, unlike Landsman, it was one of my favorite anime and still is. Mm -hmm. I loved it back then. I thought it was an amazing piece of work with some fantastic design in it. Mm Mm-hmm. And great mood and atmosphere and drama. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, when I started at Eternity, I think it was around the time that Ben Dunn, the artist on Ninja High School, mm-hmm. had started working on Captain Harlock. In fact, I'm almost certain of it because Captain Harlock opened the door for Lensman. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so it, it was about a year later, maybe a little longer. And Ben had uh, kind of tired of it, and he wanted to move on. And so they needed an artist to take over for him, and there I was, right Mm -hmm. at the point where I needed some work to do, and Ben was transitioning off. And so the first Harlock project I worked on was a four-issue miniseries dedicated to Emeraldus. Right. Okay. She's the the female space pirate in the Captain Harlock stories. Mm Mm-hmm. And Ben was doing very rough pencils on it, and so they turned it over to me to do the finished ink work. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say very rough, I mean extremely rough, where he would just sort of draw a circle with a couple dots in it and say, okay, that's a character's head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so some inkers may not have been able to handle that, but you know, I had already done penciling and inking, so right. it was no problem. And I knew what the characters looked well, like. Well, yeah, the designs were already done, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew what the background needed to look like. And uh, it was also a great way for me to meet Robert Gibson mm-hmm. again. And I say again because we had met years earlier as anime fans, but now we were meeting as professionals. He was the writer on the comic. Right. And he was also the writer on Captain Harlock, and so... Uh, we were able to build on our previous friendship and become co-workers. So when the Emeralda series ended and the slot opened on the main Captain Harlock comic and I jumped in, I was working directly with Robert. Mm -hmm. So he was writing scripts and giving them to me to draw. And that was just fantastic from start to finish. Mm -hmm. I loved every minute of that. I bet. 
And, uh, and the best part was I already had a ton of Captain Harlock reference right on my bookshelf. Yeah. And so everything I needed to make that book sing was at my fingertips. Yep. And you did a great job on it. That was, uh, that was some amazing work back then. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. As, as I think I said to you privately before, actually, your and Robert's version of Harlock is probably my favorite version of Harlock. Wow. I mean, I like well, the original, and as, we, as any Harlock fan knows, there are many versions of Harlock. I mean, of the Japanese, I like the My Youth in Arcadia Harlock the best. But I found the the Endless Road SSX TV series didn't really live up to it. I found it a bit dull, uh-huh. whereas I found your continuation was much better. Well, we had the benefit of knowing what the SSX series was like and mm-hmm. doing something different. Right, yeah. Not following in its footsteps. And it shows. Um, it, it's, yeah, it, well, it certainly has its charms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like going back and looking at it. But every time I see it, it, it becomes a little more childlike right and it becomes more obvious that they were making it they were they're sort of downgrading harlock for Mm -hmm. a young audience on tv yeah Uh, because a lot of the stories they've done since then have been much more mature Mm -hmm. and it shows in the in the writing and the art style Mm -hmm. and of course the most recent version was the cg feature film yes that came out in the summer of 2013 and uh I'm uh, I'm very happy that I was in Tokyo on opening weekend and got to see it there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But how was your Japanese? Were you able to follow it? Uh, I can understand enough Japanese to go shopping there and order food. Okay. But okay. but uh, I'm not conversational at all. Right. And uh, most of the time I just follow the pictures. Right. Which... And I pick up a word here and there, right. and it, it gets me to the end. Yeah, okay. And for that movie, it was if you knew Harlock, it wasn't that hard to follow what was going on. Right. Except for some of that weird mysticism, magic stuff that they got into in the movie, which was a little odd, but okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they always do something different with the character, add a little more to his mythos in every story. So the stuff that is only told through dialogue mm-hmm. is usually pretty opaque. Right, but yeah. at least with anime, it's so visual and the, uh, the ideas are interpreted on such a, a clear visual level mm-hmm. that you can get by without any language skills at all. Yes. Yeah. I think that's one of anime's great strengths. Mm-hmm. So after Harlock, what was your next major project? Well, I actually had other projects running concurrent with Harlock because okay. I still had to keep up with two comics a month Mm -hmm. in order to pay all the bills. Right. And so parallel with Harlock, I worked on another original series, which was the second one that Malibu uh, allowed me to do. Mm -hmm. And that was called Chaser Platoon. Wow. Okay. Okay. And it was another uh, anime robot style series, science fiction, because that's my favorite playground. Right. Now, that was the one that was Votoms inspired, wasn't it? Yes, it actually started out as a Votoms story. Oh, okay. Uh, yep. Yeah. Armored Trooper Votoms was my favorite anime of the early 80s, mm-hmm. bar none. Right. And uh, anybody who's listening to me, you owe it to yourself to check it out. It's a little rough around the edges now, but mm-hmm. in terms of, of a story that's mm. interestingly told and exciting to watch and Mecha design that that still tops just about everything today. You can't beat it. Right, right, yeah. It was everything I liked about science fiction and anime all in one place. Right. Okay. Um, 
And so it became another one of those things that was constantly churning through my head, mm-hmm. you know, like, like Star Wars and Shogun right. Warriors and all that. And so one day I, just, I thought, hey, why don't I just create a Votums comic mm-hmm. just for myself? And so I, I started writing a story and I created characters for it and I started drawing it, you know, in rough form. Mm-hmm. And I think I got about halfway through it before I put it aside to work on other things. Um, so when um, when I needed another comic to offer to mm-hmm. Eternity, I pulled it out again. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, obviously they can't get the rights to do Armored Trooper Votums. Right. But if I were to alter this into something original, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have to change a whole lot because I'd invented all the characters. I'd invented the scenario for the story. Right. All I needed to do was design new robots and spaceships and and then take it into my, my own original territory. Right. And so that's exactly what I did. And again, they saw that a lot of work was already done in advance, and so mm-hmm. they said, sure, let's make it happen. <laughs> uh, they moved it to another uh, imprint. I don't didn't really understand why at the time, nor do I understand now, but that was called <laughs> Air Cell. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think the gimmick behind Air Cell was that all of the comics had an airbrush look to them. Mm-hmm. Was that uh, why they called it Air Cell? Okay. Yeah. And it was prior to uh, the advent of digital coloring, when mm-hmm. just about anybody could do good-looking color. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the closest you could get in a pre-digital time frame was uh, inks and airbrush. Mm-hmm. Still black and white. But it still it had an extra tonality to it that made it visually different. Right. Mm-hmm. So they said, "All right, um, let's do Chaser Platoon. We'll make it a six issue series, and we'll publish it under the Air Cell name." Go. And so suddenly, I was uh, back in original territory and mm-hmm. doing my own thing again. Um, so that alternated with Captain Harlock, and mm-hmm. once again, you know, it was a dream come true where I could work on. <laughs> a favorite anime property for a couple of weeks and then bump over to work on something of my own for a couple of weeks. Hmm. Um, and the, um, the really good news about that is that Chaser Platoon did make it all the way through. All mm-hmm. six issues got published. Mm-hmm. And now it's being picked up and it will be reprinted in full color uh, later this year. Yeah. Wow. Very nice. Okay. Uh, cool. Yeah, I was approached out of the blue a few months ago by a publisher who was interested in uh, in just whatever I had to offer from past projects. If I still had the rights to it, uh, they would be interested in, in doing a reprint. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the publisher's name is Cosmic Times, mm-hmm. and they did a, uh, a Kickstarter to raise the funds to take all the old pages and put color to them. And I did a new cover piece for them. Uh, the Kickstarter met its goal. Mm-hmm. And uh, now they are working on the color, and wow. I think it'll be out uh, toward the end of the year. I don't, uh, I don't recall an actual publishing date yet. Right. Well, but I, it's going to be called Chaser Platoon: The Collected Edition, uh, or Final Countdown is the name they gave to it. Excellent. Mm-hmm. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. If you um, if you look it up, you know, if you Google it, they've got a Kickstarter page still up. Okay. Uh, and Cosmic Times has its own website too, mm-hmm. so you can see information there. Right, cool. Yeah. 
I'm sure our audience will definitely want to check that out because Jason Platoon was very good. I uh, have the original issues, and I remember I really liked them. Cool. Yeah. Well, once again, it's like another high school yearbook photo. Right. Back (laughs) and and a lot of it makes me go, ew. But, you know, it's a a time capsule. Mm -hmm. And it's part of my past that I'm still happy about. Right. It was a privilege to be able to do it. Right. And I'm sure it's going to look better in color. Um, the writing, I think, is still it still holds up. Mm-hmm. It's not very different from a story I would write today. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's like sending another child off into the world. Right. <laughs> and this one, you don't have to redraw again, and someone else is doing the color. Exactly. Yeah. So it's win-win. Right. <laughs> so um, that took me through 1991. Mm-hmm. And then in 1992... Captain Harlock was still going, mm-hmm. but uh, I needed something to replace Chaser Platoon. And there was yet another anime-style comic book that uh, Eternity wanted me to work on. They mm-hmm. bugged me for quite a while to do it. Mm-hmm. And I always resisted, but um, when I needed a second comic to fill in that hole in my schedule, I finally relented mm-hmm. and started drawing Robotech. Oh, mm. God. <laughs> <laughs> No, these were the original Robotech comics, I assume. These weren't the, um, this wasn't the Sentinels, was it? Well, the Sentinels was an ongoing series that they had. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was doing well. Mm -hmm. Um, It made consistent sales every month. Mm -hmm. It was uh, co-production of the Waltrip brothers, John and Jason Mm -hmm. Waltrip. Right, yes. Um, My interest in Robotech had sort of faded several years earlier. Mm Mm-hmm. It's always a mixed bag to go back to it because I'm much more familiar with the original source material now right? and became less and less satisfied with how it was handled right? for the English version. Mm -hmm. You know, that being said, it was still a vital link in the chain that brought anime to America. Yes. Yes, And if, if not for that, I think it would have taken a lot longer or, or may never have happened at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You know, my favorite, anime on American TV was Star Blazers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, huh. When Robotech came along, it brought in another generation of fans, mm-hmm. um, but it brought them in kind of under a different umbrella. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Blazers was really unique for its time, and it was really well made mm-hmm. uh, with respect for the original. Right, yeah. Whereas Robotech was sort of a, a bouillabaisse of different, <laughs> of three different anime shows. Yep. Yeah. That had been forcibly wedged into a single narrative together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and there were certain parts of that you could ignore, but then other parts you couldn't. Like, yeah. I thought the voice acting was, was really rough in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. The music was just intolerable. They had replaced all the, the gorgeous original music with, you know, this tinny, ugly soundtrack that... Uh, maybe took a half hour to make mm-hmm. huh. <laughs> and even less time to listen to end to end. And that they would just continually recycle it over and over. Right. Mm-hmm. That in itself was educational because I learned from that mm-hmm. how important it was to have a great soundtrack in a show. Definitely. It be- because it becomes a character mm-hmm. in the same way you listen to the voice actors performing different characters you, you, mm-hmm. And getting your emotional cues from them, you get other emotional cues from the music. Mm-hmm. And if the music doesn't live up to that, you know, if the composer of the music doesn't fully appreciate that responsibility, mm-hmm. 
it compromises the end product. And more and more, that's what was happening to me with Robotech. Right, right. And uh, it doesn't have a lot to do with my resistance to working on the comic, but it was certainly a contributor. Right. I saw it sort of like, you know, all right, this is something I will agree to do rather than be really enthusiastic about. Right, right. But the balancing act in there was rather than put me on an existing Robotech title, they allowed me to create a new one. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, what's my favorite part of Robotech? And at the time, it was the third series, Mospita. Right. Mm. And nobody had really done anything with Mospita yet, which mm-hmm. to me was was a real mystery because that's mm-hmm. a great story and there's some oh, yeah. terrific design work in it mm-hmm. and you know great characters that you can play with. And so I said, okay, but I'll, I'll do a Robotech comic for you, but... Um, here are my terms. It's going to be about the Invid invasion, mm-hmm. and we'll call it Invid War. Mm-hmm. And I want to uh, base it on the most beta section of the story. And they said, sure, mm-hmm. no problem. Because Robotech was a license to print money for them. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, anything that said Robotech on it was going to sell at a certain level or above. Right. And so to them, it was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was another way to pay my bills. Right. And it was a part of Robotech that that I could really personally enjoy exploring and, and uh, redrawing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't going to be an adaptation of that part of the TV series because Kamiko had already done that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, it was a parallel story. So uh, they teamed me up with a writer, Bill Spangler. Mm-hmm. And he knew more about the middle section of Robotech than I did, the Southern Cross section, mm-hmm. or Robotech Masters. I, I completely skipped over that part of the <laughs> the American series because I didn't know anything about the original, well, and you didn't miss wasn't much. really attracted to. It. <laughs> yeah, that, um, from what I heard, it was the the part that was most compromised by the need to wedge it into the story. I get the impression the Japanese one wasn't all that great either. <laughs> that could be. Yeah. That could well, be. That the Southern Cross, uh, I think the original Japanese one stopped like halfway through, like they never finished it. Uh, yeah, well, they, they, it has a rushed ending, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't have been the first time, no, <laughs> no, it wasn't, but it basically it, it didn't get good ratings, the Japanese didn't care much for it, and so yeah, yeah. It, just, it was just a cheap filler, basically, yeah. yeah. And uh, even looking at it from a narrative standpoint, if, if you make it the middle act of a story, mm-hmm. then you've got to kind of Frankenstein the front of it to accommodate <laughs> the previous story mm-hmm. and then Frankenstein the back of it to lead into the next story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fortunately, they didn't have to change much about Mospita at all. Right. In fact, the, the only real substantive change was to turn the name HBT into protoculture. Mm-hmm. Mm. Beyond that, it served exactly the same purpose in the story. Yeah. And so it was easy to overlook that. Um, still not easy to overlook the music, but that's another thing. <laughs> well, Mospita was also a show that I had seen in its original form by then, and so mm-hmm. I had that to gravitate toward in terms of how good it could be. So mm-hmm. really, were you basically doing a Mospita comic and just calling it Robotech? Essentially, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, however, the compromise was that it had to transition out of the Robotech Masters mm-hmm. and into the Mospita segment. Right. And so... Uh, I asked Bill if he thought we could do that with the first issue. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, we definitely could. So the first issue climaxes with the Invid invasion on Earth. Mm-hmm. 
which kicks off the most beta story. Right. And there were a handful of characters that we could pick up from the masters and carry forward. And Bill knew who they were and he was familiar with their, uh, their characterization. Mm -hmm. And so they became a set of characters to, to start working with. And then over time, their story merged into the most beta story, mm -hmm. and they both finished at the same place with the last episode. Hmm. How many issues did that run? 18. That's, wow. that's a good run. Uh -huh. And it's not what I asked for. <laughs> uh, at the beginning, I said, okay, I'll do six issues. <laughs> and those six issues sold pretty well. Right. You know, so suddenly I've got the opposite problem from the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the early Broid stories. Uh, so they said, "We want to keep it going; it's doing well." And I said, "All right, let's do another six. But then I'm definitely out. <laughs> and then we got to twelve, and they said, "Still doing well." And then I said, "Okay, another six, but now I'm absolutely definitely out." Right. Then that time I made it stick. Right. <laughs> but you weren't uh, enjoying it. Oh, I was definitely enjoying it, but there were other things I wanted to do. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, being uh, being tied down to one project over a year and a half mm -hmm. was good on a money standpoint. You know, it made income for me. Oh, yeah. But I had other things going on at the same time. Um, there was Captain Harlock, mm -hmm. which sort of came and went. There were different Captain Harlock series with gaps in between them. Mm hmm and I filled up those gaps with other projects, other original ideas that I came up with. Mm -hmm. One of them was a comic called Cybersuit Arcadine. Right, yes. Oh. I remember Which that. was published in Canada. By Aeneas oh. Publications. That's right. Yep. And uh, this was another science fiction story uh, patterned after anime, specifically Mobile Suit Gundam. Hmm. Um, the, the idea there was to take a robot that was driven uh, through um, ESP, mm -hmm. you know, through a, a brain tap, mm -hmm. so to speak. And um, it turned out to be very dangerous for the pilot to operate it. And so there was a, a conflict there. Mm -hmm. And then this was a time in the future when there are different uh, colonies on the moon and on Mars mm -hmm. and in the asteroid belt. And there were terrorist attacks happening there disguised as alien invasion. Mm -hmm. And so that was the enemy that they had to go out and fight. Right. And uh, this was a story I cooked up with a friend of mine named John Gerard, mm -hmm. who I don't think has written anything professionally since then. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was a big science fiction guy. And uh, we wanted to work on something together. So we created a six-issue story. And uh, INS Publications picked it up. Mm -hmm. And they made it to three issues before they had to give it up because it wasn't selling. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yep. So there are three more issues of that that have never seen print. Mm. And then there is going to be an additional four-issue part two afterward, which has never been written or drawn. Right. Huh. So... That's yet another one that's sitting in the archive of stories to be done maybe someday. Maybe someday to be finished, <laughs> possibly. Okay. Right. It That one was very well done. I wish you, again, and like Broid, I wish actually that one did get finished. That would be awesome. Mm. It also had the benefit of coming after a long buildup of training yes. on other, other comics. And so I was getting better at uh, 
detail mm-hmm. and in- better at inking and better at uh, composing pages and pacing out stories and all that. Mm-hmm. And so, again, like Chaser Platoon, it had its own interesting origins, but mm-hmm. it ended up as something that I'm still pretty satisfied with today. I, would, I wouldn't have to redraw a whole lot of it in order to, to bring it up to my current standard. And you might have a better audience now because, of course, anime has become just mainstream and standard now. Yeah. Yeah, but it's still very difficult to convince a publisher of that. That's true. <laughs> but the nice thing about the internet is you don't have to. That's true. Um, but if your goal is to make money, the internet is probably not the place to go. There is that. <laughs> <laughs> But for me, it's never really been about making money. Mm. I just wanted to pay the bills, and I wanted to have a stable home so that I could sit and draw stuff that I liked. Mm. And occasionally that means drawing stuff that you don't like so much. Right. Mm. But it's all contributing to a goal. Mm. Uh, And one of those goals always was and still is to have the freedom to create my own stuff. Right. So when Cybersuit Arcadine started to falter... Mm -hmm. My next step was to create a comic called Grease Monkey. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Sounds uh-huh. like you've heard of it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, this was a break with a lot of the other stuff I was doing. It wasn't an anime-inspired title. It was science fiction comedy mm-hmm. involving humans and gorillas together in space. And the, the short version of the backstory is that the Earth is invaded by aliens and everyone's almost wiped out. Mm-hmm. And then another group of aliens comes in to help, to help recover. And so they they help humans recover, but the population is teetering on the edge. Mm -hmm. And so they say, you need more help. And so they go looking for the next most intelligent creature on the planet, which is the apes. Mm -hmm. And they artificially accelerate the entire gorilla species to a level that's compatible with human beings and in some ways a little bit ahead. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the next step is to recover the earth and then go off into space and find the aliens who invaded, figure out what's going on with them. So that's the big story. You know, that's the background story, but really it was a, a chance to get characters together in an environment and have them play off of each other, mm-hmm. human and ape. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my goal was to explore in a very humorous way and hopefully a very um, intimate way all the different sociological issues that would erupt if we suddenly had to share the planet with another species. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead mm-hmm. of ruling over the animal kingdom, we suddenly had to accommodate them. Right. You know, and how would that affect human beings? Mm-hmm. And so I just started it as like a break from all the other stuff I was doing. This was in 1992, and um, angry superheroes were on the rise. (laughs) This was the time when uh, Image Comics came into its own. Mm -hmm. And what bugged me about Image Comics and all of the imitators is that they were just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, and how how interested can you be in angry superhero number 56? (laughs) Yep. You know, and how uh, how interested can I be in yet another giant weapon that doesn't look like it could work in the real world? Yep, exactly. <laughs> or, um, yeah, or how interested can I be in a, 
a boy writer who's creating female characters that all look like imaginary supermodels. There's just not a whole lot there. Nope. Mm-hmm. And so Grease Monkey was sort of my antidote to all of this. And it was yet another story that I just did for myself in the beginning, but I thought maybe someday I can sell this to a publisher. Mm-hmm. And once again, the Canadians came to my rescue. <laughs> uh, there used to be a company in Canada called Sticks International. I don't know them. Do you, Don? I've heard of them. They were Windsor's kind of a cultural pit for stuff like that. We hear about stuff, but you can never get your mitts on it. <laughs> well, Sticks was a comic book distributor to Canadian stores. Mm-hmm. In the same way Diamond and Capital City were serving the U.S. customers, Sticks was specifically for Canadian shops, Canadian mm-hmm. comic book mm-hmm. stores. And they published a magazine called Up and Coming, which was part catalog and part articles, part news. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had heard of me because of Cybersuit Archidine. Hmm. And one day they called me up out of the blue. Or no, 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 that's not how it went. I called them up because I was looking for ways to get Cybersuit Archidine some publicity. Mm-hmm. And I learned about this magazine. And so I either called them or wrote them a letter saying, hey, I've got this comic and uh, if you're interested in, in covering it, I'm, I'd love to give you an interview. Mm-hmm. And instead of writing me back, they called me back. The publisher there was named Brent Richard. And he called me up out of the blue and said, hey, is this Tim Eldred? And I said, yeah. And he said, hey, I'm a big fan of yours. I've been following your work for years. Mm-hmm. That's always good to hear. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you want to hear. And he said, by the way, if you've got any other comic book projects in the works we have this magazine called up and coming and we're looking for a feature that we can run every month and that was right about the time i was finishing up the first grease monkey comic Mm -hmm. and what made it such an interesting coincidence is that i wanted it to be a series of short stories Mm -hmm. because i wanted to explore a shorter format Mm -hmm. and so i limited each chapter to 12 pages which was half the usual length of a comic book Mm -hmm. And 12 pages was exactly right for up and coming. And so they said yes instantly as soon as they saw a a photocopy. You know, I think I faxed a copy of the first (laughs) chapter up to them. Mm -hmm. And they said, great, let's do this for six issues. And suddenly I had a new project that was going to pay a little money. And so I came up with six chapters and they got all six of them in the magazine And then I moved on to other things. But Grease Monkey is a project that kept coming back in various ways over subsequent years. Mm -hmm. It went on hold for a while after that, but I wanted to keep it going. So I kept writing more strips and thinking someday I'll take these scripts and I'll turn them into actual comics. Mm -hmm. And that did eventually happen. But for a while, I had other things some pretty big things going on because at the end of 92, Mm -hmm. Malibu Graphics was going into expansion. Hmm. They had Eternity Comics and they had Air Cell and they had one or two other things, but they were just about to start a new thing called the Ultraverse. Okay. Oh, Oh, yes. Yeah, Yeah, I remember the Ultraverse. Yeah, that was their attempt at superheroes. Exactly. That was part of the big image wave, Mm -hmm. you know, the the wave of image imitation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Images of image. Images of image. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) And so in uh, late 92, they started thinking about, uh, all right, if we're going to go full bore, we need more people here on staff to help us do this. 
and we're going to have to set up an art department. So who is currently in our freelancer pool who we would trust to bring in and would be reliable and could meet deadlines and all this stuff? And so one day I got a call from the editor, Chris Alm, mm-hmm. and he said, here's what we're going to do. We'd like to bring you on board. And the offer we're prepared to, to make for you is this amount of money per year, which was less than I needed. So I was able to bargain them up a little bit. Hmm. And we will move you across the country from Michigan to Los Angeles. Wow. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good deal. Yeah. And uh, it took a little bit of thinking because leaving Michigan was something I had never considered. My family was there. All my friends were there. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really see a future there. It was a case of I could stay in Michigan and then and continue struggling for comic book freelance work, which is getting harder and harder to find. Or I could sign on completely with Malibu, join their staff, and live in one of the, the biggest you know, entertainment capitals of the world. Right. And my wife at the time said, if you don't move to Los Angeles, you're an idiot. <laughs> right. And of course, you know, Im- implying we are all going to move to Los Angeles. Yes. And, we, and so that's what we did. Hmm. And that happened in the December of 1992. Uh, and I still remember that trip vividly because we uh, started out uh, trying to race an ice storm to get to the airport. And we took off maybe a half hour before the airport was closed. And we landed in Los Angeles, and it was bright and sunny, and it was a completely new world. Hmm. All in one day. Uh, And that led to about a year and a half of a completely new comic book experience where I was on the inside, you know, on a publishing staff, running an art department, and watching all of this new stuff get developed around me and contributing to it where I could. My main um, function as head of the art department was to oversee lettering, of all things. Uh, I still had Captain Harlock going, and uh, I think maybe I was done with Robotech at the time. So I would work at Malibu all day on Ultraverse Comics, and then I would go home and work on Captain Harlock at night, uh, which was pretty heavy stuff Hmm. you know there was no break from comic books at that point and i would get to draw something occasionally on the day job but most of it was about lettering which is a very technical job Mm -hmm. um i've always had good penmanship and so pretty early on i started lettering my own comics and uh doing my own logos and i think that's what really tipped it for them because Computer lettering was still a few years in the future, and they still needed somebody who could do hand lettering that looked good. And so I was their first hire, and then they brought in a couple of other guys. And then some other artists came in after that. And so eventually we had a team of about six of us all doing various jobs. And um, you were never tempted to actually do your own like superhero comic during this boom, or you've just not been a superhero guy? Well, I was a superhero guy as a kid. You know, Marvel superheroes were my bread and butter back in the 70s. But then in the 80s uh, came along this comic book called uh, Secret Wars. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the original Secret Wars? Oh, yeah, the original Secret Wars. (laughs) I think there have been two or three since then, but I remember the original. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, uh, fortunately, the the more recent ones have been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. But the original was one of the worst comic books I had ever seen. Mm-hmm. I had seen bad Marvel comics before, but not like this. This was a whole new level of bad, <laughs> where it was obviously done very quickly and very cheaply. The art looked very minimal. There were a lot of uh, long sequences with almost no backgrounds. Uh, I knew enough about comics at that point to know when someone was cheating. (laughs) And this was definitely a cheat. It was a 12-issue series where they were just filling it with uh, as much as they could think of in terms of getting characters to fight each other, but no motivation at all for an overall story. Mm. Uh, And it was also a pretty cynical cash-in attempt because there were supposed to be tie-ins with action figures and other kinds of merchandising. I think at that point, hadn't Marvel gotten a new editor? I think hadn't, like, I think, was it Jim Shooter? Someone took over during that time, and they were much more business-minded than the previous guy. I remember that, but I can't remember exactly who it was. Well, the previous guy was Roy Thomas, but yes, you're definitely thinking of Jim Shooter. Okay, it was Jim Shooter then, who I know is a very controversial figure in Marvel history. Right. He was also a, a guy that I met later on, and um, I actually worked for, oh. and so I, I learned some things about him that I could respect, mm-hmm. but back then, in 1982, 83, <clears throat> it was obvious to me that mm-hmm. that he had was believing a little too hard in his own hype, right? Mm. and would continually carry on this, this party line of, Secret Wars is great, it's the best thing we've ever done. Mm. Secret Wars is the best comic ever. Right. And meanwhile, there's other people like me sitting off to the side saying, no, it isn't, because <laughs> you, this comic is really good, and that one's really good, and Secret Wars is nothing like those. <laughs> and so um, that was sort of the beginning of the end for me uh, in terms of superhero comics. Right. There were others at the time that I really liked. Walter Simonson's Thor was amazing. And John Byrne's Fantastic Four was incredible. But uh, those ended, and after they were done, mm. uh, there wasn't much to keep me interested in Marvel anymore. And so I turned away from that, and that's when I started getting more interested in Dark Horse and Eternity and, and uh, you know other independent publishers. And um, that was also the time when I discovered 2000 AD, the British comic. Mm. Right. With Judge Dredd in it. Mm-hmm which I still follow today because I mm. love it. Don is a big Judge Dredd fan. Cool. <laughs> uh, we'll have to talk about the movies sometime. <laughs> or at least one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, after that came European comics and Japanese comics and all this other stuff. So it was kind of like Marvel wanted to push me out into the bigger world. <laughs> and they, they, and they, they used Secret Wars to do it, and it worked really well. Because I didn't look back at Marvel until many, many years later. The next Marvel comic I picked up was The Ultimates. Mm, right. Remember the, the first Ultimates series? Oh, yes. Which, uh, which essentially laid the groundwork for all the Marvel movies that we're seeing now. Yep, yeah. yep, definitely. Yeah. Well, it was like a movie. It just looking at it, it looked like a movie in comic book form. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and now, to kind of put a button in this part of the story, mm-hmm. my day job is working as an animation director at Marvel Animation Studio mm-hmm. on the Avengers cartoon. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're working on our fourth season right now. Mm-hmm. 
And the uh, title for this season is Secret Wars. Uh oh. Oh my God. <laughs> but it's got zero to do with that original comic. Okay, so it's based oh. on the later Secret Wars they did? No, it just shares the name. Oh, it just shares wow. the name. Okay. Yep. The story is totally different. I was scared because uh, I like the Avengers cartoon, and you're like, and, and this is Tim Eldred pushing me out into the bigger world. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting that they chose to adapt Secret Wars. Is there a particular reason they chose to do that, or are you privy well, to that? No, it's not an adaptation. Okay, sorry. But they uh, took the I, name from it, so obviously there must be some attempt there. Well, there are some similar elements, okay. and I'm, uh, I'm not at liberty to say oh, what those of are. It is essentially an alternate version of the Secret Wars comics that came out last year. Right. Okay. Okay. Different stakes, different characters, mm. different plots. Right. Um, I love that new Secret Wars comic. That was one of the best things I've read in a long time. Right. Hmm. And the artwork on it was just astonishing. Hmm. Okay. So I'm, I'm very happy now to be back inside the Marvel bubble. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> but... You know, back in the 90s, Mm -hmm. um, they had pushed me away so hard and and Image had done, you know, even worse stuff than Secret Wars. Yeah. And so (laughs) I I had no interest at all in developing my own superhero comics. Mm. And that Mm -hmm. sort of put me on the outside of what was happening in the Ultraverse. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. I tried to get interested in the stuff on a narrative level. But so much of it was so obviously derived from other things Mm -hmm. that I just didn't see a whole lot that interested me specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I did get an inking assignment out of it, a monthly assignment, Mm -hmm. because there was a point where Captain Harlock finally dried up. Right. And they were starting to move energy away from Eternity and into the Ultraverse. Mm -hmm. And so... I definitely wanted to keep another monthly assignment going because California is a pretty expensive place to live. I believe it. And so they put me on one of the Ultraverse comics as an inker, and the name of that is was The Strangers. Hmm. Oh, okay. And it was essentially Avengers and X-Men sort of crossed over in mm-hmm. different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worked on that for about a year and a half. And by that time, I was... Uh, starting to see other freelance opportunities again and starting to lose my interest in staying at Malibu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I broke away from them in uh, 1994 mm-hmm. and started to pursue other things, but I was still getting occasional assignments from them. One of them was Project Echo. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, yeah. That was an adaptation of that. the uh, original anime. Right. And that followed the same model as the old Mecha series where I would create a script and lay out pages mm-hmm. and then hand them off to an artist. Right. In this case, the artist was Ben Dunn. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I believe he drew the first two issues and then started to lose interest. And then I took over with three and four. Right. Okay. Uh, and at the same time, I did a couple of issues of deep space nine, which was a star Trek comic. Hmm. Are you a star Trek fan? Kind of. Okay. Uh, I appreciate it. Right. I was never a big fan of the original. Right. Um, I uh, I have nothing in particular against it. It's just not something that I gravitate toward. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. So so what what made you do this Deep Space Nine comic then? 
uh, needed to pay some bills. Okay, that'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. And uh, and they needed somebody who could draw it on time. Mm-hmm. And so and once again, you. we met in the middle. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this was also about the time that I had connected with Jim Shooter, mm-hmm. who had his own company now called Valiant, and I did a few little projects for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but something else kind of interesting and unforeseen happened as a result of being at Malibu mm-hmm. on staff. Right. And that was that I could weigh in on ideas for new projects. Mm-hmm. Mm. And occasionally they would get approached by somebody from outside who had a project that they could license. And this was about the time that anime was starting to be imported to uh, U.S. stores through companies like U.S. Manga Corps and um, Books Nippon and others. You know, they, they would license a show from Japan and then they would repackage it for America and put it out on VHS tape. Mm-hmm. Right. And so occasionally one of them would wander over to the Malibu office and say, hey, we've got this comic book, or rather we've got this anime license, would you like to make a comic book version? Because they had seen some of what we did uh, did with previous uh, properties like Robotech, Captain Harlock, Lensman. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how Project ACO came to be. We were approached by U.S. Manga Corps and... That's how I connected with the uh, the president of that company, John O'Donnell, and we became friends. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, we got a letter from a company called Voyager Entertainment. Hmm. This came to them through um, through the mail back in 1993, and Voyager was based in New Jersey at the time, and they had a property. Wait for it. Mm-hmm. Called? Called Star Blazers. And your life goes full circle. (laughs) (laughs) They wrote a letter to Malibu saying, we own the worldwide rights to Star Blazers. Would you be interested in making a comic book version? Mm -hmm. And by the time that letter rolled in, they already knew me as the the in-house guy for anime stuff. Mm -hmm. So they brought it over to me and said, "Uh, what do you think about Star Blazers? Is it worth picking up? And I said, yes. Immediately. (laughs) Right. Uh, But they couldn't do it because they were too uh, fogged up with Ultraverse comics. Mm -hmm. Mm. They just didn't have the the time or the energy to spend on yet another thing. And so they turned it down. Mm -hmm. But there is no way I was going to get that close to Star Blazers and let it go. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because this... This was one of the things that got me on my path. Mm-hmm. When I watched Star Blazers back in high school, right. 79, 1980, that showed me the future. That showed me the, the far future where I could go. To make something like Star Blazers became a lifetime goal for me. Mm-hmm. And that's also part of what made me feel like, you know, eventually I'm going to have to get out of Michigan. Mm-hmm. So it planted a seed there. Right. So, yes, this was definitely that full circle moment where Star Blazers comes to me. And so I made absolutely sure that Malibu was not interested in pursuing it. And they said, yes, absolutely, we're not interested in pursuing it. And we've already informed Voyager that we're not going to go forward. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, you're out. I'm in. And so I contacted Voyager on my own. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was after I got together with two local friends named Bruce Lewis and John Ott both local artists. 
and anime fans, mm-hmm. and we all knew Star Blazers, and it was one of those things that we all shared. Right. And I said, we should put ourselves together as packagers because mm-hmm. we've got all the skills we need to create a comic book. We just don't have a publisher. Mm-hmm. And so we put together a proposal for Voyager Entertainment, and we sent it off saying, basically, you could become your own publisher. If you want to do a Star Blazers comic, we can make it for you. We can produce it. We can contact distributors. We can line up all the steps. You would just need to do the publishing. And they met with us in person, and they said, this is a terrific idea. Let's do it. And yet another dream come true at that moment. Simultaneous with that, we had decided, well, we could do more than just one comic. In fact, we really should because we've got three of us to support and we've all got families. And so let's see what other kind of business we can scare up for ourselves. And so we used our connection with U.S. Manga Corps and John O'Donnell to uh, create some more business for ourselves. We approached him with the same proposal. You know, if, if you would like to become a publisher, we can create your product for you. And he immediately saw the sense in that. And so in addition to Star Blazers, almost immediately that same year, we got Project ACO Part 2 hmm. and <clears throat> Gal Force and MD Geist. Oh, okay. And Cyber City, all of which were based on anime properties. Huh. So that was one of the main things that I left Malibu to do. I uh, walked away from them in 1994 And that was the year we started building all these deals with these new clients. And in 1995, they all started to come out. Um, The the studio that we had was called Studio Go. And we were able to put our mark on all of the comics that we did. Uh, And it was just fantastic. I had left the, um, the insider publishing world and gone into my own different version of it as a freelancer. And got to, you know, work on all these these dream projects, and it was amazing. Uh, And one of my other goals that I wanted to pursue at this time was, so earlier I mentioned the other anime show that I liked called Armored Trooper Votums. Yes. And from the first moment I met John O'Donnell at U.S. Manga Corps, I started promoting it to him Mm -hmm. because he was in a position to go after the anime. Right, yeah. And import it to America. Mm-hmm. Um, other companies had cracked the um, the Nippon Sunrise market already. Mm-hmm. You know that famous vault that was just full of magical mm-hmm. anime robot SF shows from the 1980s. Right. Yep. And uh, I started petitioning John pretty regularly to go after Armored Trooper Votums. He mm-hmm. knew what it was. He thought it was interesting, and so he went for it, and he got it. Yes. And so part of this plan to develop a relationship with U.S. Manga Corps was so that I might get myself eventually in a position to draw an Armored Trooper Votums comic book for America. Of mm-hmm. And that also happened. Yes. It started in 95, and it was published in 1996. Mm-hmm. It was going to be a four-issue series. Notice the past tense in there. Yes, we, I noticed <laughs> that, yeah, unfortunately. They committed to a four-issue series. They said, okay, start, start working on it. And so my plan was to take the first Votum's anime story, which was a prequel to the TV series, Mm -hmm. split it up over three issues, 
Mm-hmm. And then from there, start on a regular adaptation so right. that uh, issue four would adapt TV episode one. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think I got all the way up to issue three mm-hmm. before they hit a big wall. The entire comic book industry hit a big wall all at yep. one time. Uh, and that would have been, I think, late 94. Mm-hmm. That's when all these different companies, including Malibu and Dark Horse, decided to follow the image path and mm-hmm. put out their own superhero titles. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't yeah. just one or two titles here and there. It was a complete integrated superhero universe mm-hmm. with multiple titles that crossed over. Mm-hmm. So rather than build this slowly and sensibly, you know, by putting out your first one and then spinning off the next one from that and then spinning off the next one from that, they all went full bore from the first month mm-hmm. with, you know, six titles, seven titles, whatever it was. Right. They each wanted to start with an entire universe that their readers had to buy in one big gulp. Yep. Mm. And that might work if you're the only company doing it. But if you're competing with other companies that are doing the same thing, suddenly there's a glut of product and nobody can afford to buy all of it. Mm -hmm. And so there was a point in the fall of 94, which I think they call Black October, (laughs) when uh, the summer releases had come out and they were starting now to get orders from comic shops that reflected the actual sales of the first issues. Mm -hmm. And those sales dropped precipitously. Yeah. Mm. And remember what I said, you're always working several months ahead of publication. And so when those numbers came in, they were already several months down the road in terms of the comics they were making. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they knew that those comics were not going to be profitable. Mm-hmm. And they had to make really difficult decisions really quickly. You know, how can mm-hmm. we end it with this issue? Or how can we consolidate these two into one comic? Um, and subsequent to that, um, there was a collapse in distribution. Yeah. Mm where we had two big distributors to carry everything. There was Diamond and there was Capital City. Mm-hmm. Capital City was the smaller of the two, but they were still important. They, mm-hmm. they I think, represented about a third of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. When all the publishers were about to hit that wall at the same time, Marvel Comics decided that they had to shore up their resources. And so they very aggressively bought out Capital City Mm -hmm. so that they could have their own distribution, their own channel directly to the stores. And this sent a huge shockwave through the entire industry because, number one, Marvel was looking for a way to do an end run around all the other publishers. Number two, you suddenly had all your business taken away if you were working with Capital City. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. was that was a huge contributing factor to that that precipitous drop, right? So now everybody lost at least a third of their sales, and if some publishers like say Voyager Entertainment was entirely dependent on Capital City, they had no choice but to cancel, and so that's why the Star Blazers comic ended where it did. 
Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that finished with issue 11. We went all the way up to number 11 mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in the year 1997. That's mm-hmm. when the last issue was published. Right. And we had similar issues with uh, U.S. Manga Corps. Mm-hmm. And that brings me back to Armored Trooper Votums. That's the project. Right. That's what I was working on at the time. Mm-hmm. And they suddenly realized that they were not able to publish it as four issues. So instead, hmm. they had already invested quite a bit of money into production. So they decided, all right, let's have Tim finish out. Mm-hmm. And then we'd take all those four issues and put them into a single graphic novel. And so that was published in 96 under the title Armored Trooper Votums Supreme Survivor. Mm-hmm. And of my entire uh, output during the early 90s to mid-90s, that, I think, is the best thing that I've done. Really? Yeah. Because hmm. I, I look at that now, and it's like a, uh, it's like a, a master's degree, you know, like my, my doctorate in comic books. Right. At this time, um, I knew everything I could figure out about lettering. I knew how to mm-hmm. do my own coloring. I had developed a, a much faster system of drawing where I could take uh, pencil drawing and scan it into a computer and then manipulate it instead mm-hmm. of having to ink it. Mm-hmm. And so that allowed me to work a lot faster. And, of course, I was working on my favorite anime show. Right. So yeah. obviously I was going to give it all the love and care I could. And, and you did. Yep. And it was heartbreaking to know that that's the only chance I was ever going to get, but at least it was still a chance. You still got it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would have loved to make that a monthly series for you know years and years and years and adapt every mm-hmm. single episode into a comic book and mm-hmm. even create some original stories if I got the chance to do that. But... Mm-hmm. I still got to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did. And, and that's what counted. So that kind of brought my comic book career to uh, to a peak. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to start thinking about doing something else. Mm-hmm. And during that same year, 1996, uh, I was pitching my earlier strip, Grease Monkey, Mm-hmm. To animation studios. Mm-hmm. This came about because uh, there was a point after it was originally published that it was repackaged and it was colored and it was reprinted by Kitchen Sink Press. Right. Let's see. I'm looking at my my year-to-year calendar here. That happened in 1996 as well. Mm-hmm. So that was a big year. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. They picked it up because they had already taken a different comic book of theirs called Xenozoic Tales mm-hmm. and uh, adapted it into a Saturday morning cartoon called Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. Yeah. And this gave them a pathway to follow for another project. And then they started looking around thinking, well, what else is in our library that we could turn into a Saturday morning cartoon? Well, they had a lot of underground comics in their library. And they had our, you know, uh, our crumb comics in their library. And they had a lot of things that were very specifically meant for adult audiences that could never mm-hmm. be considered for kid TV. No Freak Brothers Saturday morning <laughs> Not in that century. I'd watch it. <laughs> well, yeah. So that was another right place, right time where I had the six Grease Monkey mini strips that I'd come up with. 
and I was looking for another publisher to, to pick up and run with that story and maybe continue it because I definitely wanted to do more. And so Kitchen Sink was a publisher that I approached at the time. And, you know, timing is everything. They had the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs cartoon on TV and they were looking for something else to make into another cartoon. And Grease Monkey looked like it could be that thing. Mm-hmm. And so they, they paid me to color it. And they put it out as a two-issue comic series so that could, they could get something into the market. And then, because I was in Los Angeles, I was able to meet with their L.A. representative, an agent named Brad Newfeld, who had an office in Beverly Hills. And so I got, you know, my very first showbiz meeting in Beverly Hills and got to go to a showbiz restaurant afterward. And the plan that we cooked up was to develop Grease Monkey for animation. Mm -hmm. And that meant me creating new artwork for it and teaming up with an animation writer who knew knew how to uh, construct a pitch. And then they sent us off with this package to visit one studio after another. One by one, they all turned us down because of one thing or another. Um, right. Yeah, the first turn down was one that I really didn't expect. Um, most of the characters in the story are female. They're fighter mm-hmm. pilots working on the spaceship. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we were pitching the, the very first uh, studio, animation studio we pitched to, had a female production manager. Mm-hmm. who could say yes or no to new projects. And I thought, oh, fantastic. You know, I've got this comic that puts female characters in a really positive light, turns them into heroes. We're going to pitch to a woman. She's going to love it. And she said no, because there were too many female characters. Yep. Huh. At the time, a lot of cartoons were driven by toy sales, and they still are to some extent. Uh, but back then, toy sales were everything. And action figures, most especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the overwhelming uh, philosophy at the time was boys will not buy action figures oh. of female characters. Mm, right. And, yeah, the more they pumped themselves up with that philosophy, the more true it became. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they're creating a self-fulfilling ideal. If we make these, oh. nobody will buy them. So, therefore, we won't make them. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thinking runs at every level about different things within right. cartoons and comics and film and, and animation and everything. Uh, but fortunately, that's not the end of the story. We did pitch to a lot of other studios. They almost all said no because uh, they they just didn't need, see it as a good fit for their network or they didn't want science fiction or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the last studio on the list that we came to was USA Network. Hmm. They don't exist anymore. But they were still making programming then. They were doing original programming. And I met with a guy named Ralph Sanchez, who was their producer at the time. He was developing a show called Wing Commander Academy. Okay. And it was based on the Wing Commander video game. Right. Which was one of the late 90s uh, CD-ROM games that did really well. Mm-hmm. It had Mark Hamill in it and a few other actors. Yep. So they were developing that for a weekend TV show. I think it eventually got on Sunday mornings instead of Saturday mornings, but that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. And 
they were in that mindset when I walked in there with Grease Monkey and we pitched it to Ralph Sanchez and he said, I love this and I will think about doing it. But in the meantime, why don't you come over here and work on Wing Commander Academy? Because mm-hmm. the artwork I showed him was so close in tone to what they needed mm. that he knew instantly I was the guy to help them finish the development phase. Right. Mm. And so that became the birthplace of a whole new career in TV animation. Just as comics were winding down, I was moving into that zone. Mm. And um, I developed some, uh, some presentation artwork that showed the characters and showed the spaceships and they added that to what they had and they sold the property. It got on USA. Um, actually I need to revise something I said earlier. Mm -hmm. Rather than pitching it to USA network, we pitched it to universal. Universal Uh, was the, the packaging company and USA network was the distributor. But eventually the show ended up on USA network. So because I was there again, right place, right time, and Ralph liked what I did so much, he said, okay, we got the show. It's a green light because of what you did for us. Therefore, we're going to bring you in and we're going to get you to work on the show itself. And I said, wow, what can I do for you? And he said, well, character design is is the number one thing. We're going to need characters for every episode. And how would you like to try out storyboarding? And I thought, well, how, how hard could it be? It's essentially like comic books, right? And I've been doing comic uh-huh. books for all for ten years now. And uh, he said, "Okay, we'll we'll take a shot at it. You can do storyboards." And so that summer, they started me as a character designer and a storyboard artist on a new show. And I had no experience in either one. I just had a skill set. Um, this would almost never happen today, because you know now I'm. I'm well entrenched in the TV animation business and I know who I would hire mm-hmm. and I know they would need to have some experience in one of those two things for me to even consider looking at their work. Right. So this was a massive leap of faith mm-hmm. on the, on the, the part of my friend Ralph right. and we're, we're still friends today. He's still mm-hmm. in the animation business and we've crossed over on other projects and, and we're Facebook friends and all that. So, mm-hmm. so he's one of many benefactors who I met along this path, who I, I still maintain contact with now. Right. So Wing Commander Academy got started. I was doing storyboards for, you know, like every other episode. And it was a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't exactly like comics, but it was close enough that I could take everything I knew and apply it to this new medium. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I had a lot of things to learn about how to tell a story in this format where all the pictures are the same size and you can only see one picture at a time. Right. As opposed to a comic book page where you open it up and you've got a montage. So it was it was new training in a new field, but I had enough of a grounding in the old field that I could run with it and make it my own. Hmm. That went really well, but um, it was only one run of episodes. I think right. they did I think they did twenty six. Maybe it was 13. It's been a long time since I went back to revisit that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they were still considering doing something with with Grease Monkey. Mm -hmm. Um, They eventually decided not to. It it could have been something to do with the uh, success or failure of Wing Commander Academy. Mm -hmm. I'm sure every project 
has to meet a certain level of acceptance in order mm-hmm. for them to consider another project like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we eventually repitched Grease Monkey to film Roman, mm-hmm. and they turned it down. And then we pitched it to Hanna Barbera, and they were interested at first, but then eventually they turned it down. So mm-hmm. that never came to be. Hmm. However, it was still my project, and I still mm-hmm. wanted to see it animated in some way. Mm-hmm. And so I did it myself. Really? Yep. Huh. In 1996 and 97, I got deep, deep, deep into animation. All the comic mm-hmm. book work went aside. And I started to learn how cartoons were made. Right. Especially the pre-production side, where mm-hmm. uh, what you end up with is what we call an animatic. Mm-hmm. Do you guys know what that term means? Yes. Mm-hmm. Describe it. An animatic is basically uh, a storyboard, usually, with a mm-hmm. uh, soundtrack linked up with it. Usually show it with the storyboard representing the individual scenes. Exactly. Exactly mm-hmm. right. An animatic was a pretty new thing when I started at Sony Animation at the mm-hmm. end of 1997. Right. They hired me based on the strength of Wing Commander Academy to work on a new series called Extreme Ghostbusters. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. And at the same time, they were developing a series called Men in Black, based mm-hmm. on the movie that, that was about to come out. Right. And so I got to work on both of those. Huh. And in the process of doing that work, I learned how to make an animatic, which is what you describe. You take a full storyboard, mm-hmm. you scan all the images into a computer, and you time them to appear alongside a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So you've got your voice actors reading their lines, and you plug it into a program. In this back then, it was Adobe Premiere. Mm-hmm. And you can time how long a picture is going to appear on the screen before it gets replaced by the next picture. So you're essentially making rudimentary animation mm-hmm. using storyboards and sound. And it was a necessary tool because you couldn't necessarily put a storyboard in front of a producer and know that they were, would understand what you're showing them. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's, there's, because it has to do with the language of film mm-hmm. and you can understand that language when a film is rolling in front of you but when you see it as individual frames uh, it requires more imagination and um, some producers don't have a lot of imagination so we had to step mm. in for them and create these animatics as sort of a rough version of what a TV show was going to look like right yeah and so I made lots and lots of animatics. Within that first year, uh, I was bumped up to an episode director. Mm-hmm. And so I was directing individual episodes of Extreme Ghostbusters mm-hmm. and then overseeing the animatic that resulted from that. And so I got to learn, okay, if you draw this way, then it has this impact on, a, on an mm-hmm. animatic uh, TV screen. Mm-hmm. So I learned how far you needed to draw how many poses you would need to draw, for example, in order to communicate the intention. Mm -hmm. What we would end up doing is essentially key animation. Mm -hmm. And um, just so you know exactly what I'm talking about, a key animator would identify the most extreme poses of a character and draw just those, and then an in-betweener would come in and draw all the poses between them. So... An example, a really simple one would be if somebody's arm is down and then goes up, 
the key animator would draw the down and up positions, and then the in-betweener would draw all the intermediate positions. And so when I say key animation, you kind of get an idea of what an animatic looks like. It lacks the in-between drawings, but it has enough there that you can still uh, understand the intention of the director. And so, as I got better at making animatics, I realized, you know, I could make my own, because I've got a computer at home, I could get Adobe Premiere, and I could actually make my Grease Monkey cartoons. <clears throat> and so, for the years of 2000 and 2001, I worked nonstop on those on my free time. And at the same time, I had already written a bunch of stories for that strip, and I knew I wanted to eventually do more. And so I had plenty of story material, and I just started to adapt that and take pieces of it and turn it into cartoons. Mm -hmm. And you can actually see these right now at uh, my Grease Monkey website. I'll put a link in the show notes. Yep. It's greasemonkeybook.com. Mm -hmm. And I say book because it did eventually get published as a big book. It came out from Tor Books in uh, 2006. They released it as a hardcover with right. everything I had done up to that point. After that, I went ahead and did a second entire book. And everything I've ever done for Grease Monkey is now on that website, including mm -hmm. the cartoons. There are two of them. Right. And everything in those cartoons was based on the material that we created for the pitch uh, I just took it and I developed it further. I took it to where it needed to be to make an animatic, and then I made it all on mm. my own. And that must have taken forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started out thinking this is just going to be a, a quick project. It'll be five minutes long. I could do it in a month. Mm -hmm. And six months later, it was 17 minutes long. Right. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started another one. That was shorter, but it still took another six months. So it was about a full year right. of just working on that. But, you know, it was heaven. I was getting to take something that I created that really meant something to me and evolved it into a totally new thing. Mm. And, and that's what I live for. You know, through all of these experiences, getting to work on stuff I loved, but constantly running into these barriers. Mm-hmm when it came to publishing it, I decided my life goal is going to be to get to a place where I have a day job that pays all my bills so that I can go home at night, work on whatever the hell I want to mm. for my, on my own time, at my own pace, not worry about meeting somebody else's standards, not worry right. about trying to meet a publishing deadline, and just put it out any way I can think of. And if one or two people sees it, that's fine. At least I got the joy of creating it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very, well, I'm very happy to say that because I've been in animation now for quite a while, I'm coming up on 20 years. In fact, it's 20 years right now oh, wow. since I started working on Wing Commander Academy. <clears throat> I've reached that point. You know, TV, for all its faults, mm -hmm. pays really well. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And so I'm I'm now at a point where I've got a day job that pays the bills and all of my other time goes to only stuff that I want to do just so I can see it get done and enjoy right. making it. So hmm. is that where Pittsburgh has come from? Absolutely. That's my current project. Um, 
I've gone through a lot of different animated shows. There was Dragon Tales, Men in Black, Godzilla, uh, Max Steel, two, no, three versions of Spider-Man. There's a Jackie Chan cartoon. Mm-hmm. There was one called oh. Shaolin Showdown. Right. Um, I did my time on Scooby-Doo for a while, which is kind of the Robotech of... You know. Yeah, <laughs> I understand, yeah. Well, wait, which Scooby-Doo did you work on? It was called Scooby-Doo and Shaggy Get a Clue. Oh, okay. okay, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, Don's one of the few people who actually watches that. I also Scooby-Doo, worked I mean. on a, a little bit of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. Okay, because yeah. I like that one. Uh, a lot of people did. Uh, it did surprisingly well. And then uh, there were various Marvel projects that led me to Avengers, where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, including the previous version of Avengers, called uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at the same time I was doing that, which was a Marvel team-up show, mm-hmm. I was also working on The Brave and the Bold for Warner, which was a DC team-up show. Wow. <laughs> and so... You can see how the, uh, the the comic book experience of working on two mm-hmm. sh- two comics every month translated directly into the cartoon experience where I was working on two TV shows every month. Right. Wow. For the same reason, you know, so right. I could double my income. Well, yeah, makes sense. <clears throat> so you primarily working on them as a board artist? Yes, exactly. Okay, yeah. So I'd spend two weeks drawing Avengers and then two weeks drawing Batman and his guest stars mm-hmm. and then jump back and forth and that lasted for a good long time. Close wow. to a year. There are many comic artists right now that I met hate you. They <laughs> I uh, I revel in your hatred, and I wish I could invite <laughs> you to uh, to join me. Okay. Um, unfortunately, to uh, to get jobs like that, you really have to be in Los Angeles. I believe it because mm. they um, they prefer to work with local people who they can mm-hmm. see face to face. There are exceptions, mm. obviously. Because the local talent pool is only so deep, and then you've got mm-hmm. to stretch outside of that. In mm-hmm. fact, um, my entire storyboard team on the Avengers cartoon mm-hmm. is based in Vancouver. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of Canadian talent being uh, going to work on that show. Okay, so do they actually have an office in Vancouver, or are they all working out of their homes? They have a studio in Vancouver called Atomic Cartoons, mm-hmm. and they make several shows um, – and it's this contract they have with Marvel that put them in line to work on the Avengers. Wow, okay. Yep. I, I so, didn't know about that. That's interesting. Yep. It's Ooh. it's quite a co-production. And then you've got some very talented artists in your within your borders. Well, it's we've got winter. <laughs> you, you're from Michigan. You understand what winter's yeah. like here. We have nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll just draw something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This is why comic books and role-playing games were so popular up here in Canada. It's because, well, we've got winter, so what what else do we do? (laughs) And warm food, right? And warm food, Mm -hmm. exactly. Well, we have poutine, so. Yep. (laughs) And and no carotid arteries anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yep. So anyway, you mentioned Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh. Yes. Um, This is all a very long wind-up to what is my current project, which is is a webcomic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the first webcomic I've done. I also have my Star Blazers and Space Battleship Yamato website, which right. I didn't didn't mention before. Right. That started as a result of the Star Blazers comic books. Voyager Entertainment hired me to uh, work on their DVDs a couple of years after the comic books folded. Mm-hmm. 
and they needed a way to promote those, so they hired me to create and produce a website for them, which continues today. It's called Cosmo DNA. Right. And in order to keep that uh, filled up with content, mm-hmm. I decided, hey, I'm in a position to draw Star Blazers comics again. Mm-hmm. There was an, an anniversary year. 2005 was the mm-hmm. 25th anniversary of Star Blazers in America. And I thought one way I could mark that anniversary to was to uh, start making a new Star Blazers comic. And then um, I immediately had to grapple with the idea of how do I publish it? Because the same obstacles that stopped the previous version are still in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, wait a minute, website. I don't even need paper. I can just put it on the website and we can make right. it a, a serial. Then I could still do the work and we have an immediate place to put it. We don't have to pay anybody to print it or ship it or store it or sell it. Mm-hmm. It just goes directly to the people who want to read it. Right. And so I started that in 2005. It was a, an original story called Star Blazers Rebirth. Hmm. Took two years, got it all out there. It's all on the oh. website right now. Okay. Then I did my second Grease Monkey project, put that online. That's all on the website. Then I did another Star Blazers comic called The Bolar Wars Extended, mm-hmm. which is on the website. So now the internet is taking the place of paper. Right. And I'm still mm-hmm. getting to do comics, which is what I love to do. Hmm. Cartoons are great. And it's fantastic to see all the the talent come together and to make a TV show. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of hands steering that wheel. Right. Mm. And so to a certain extent, um, it it can be creatively stifling. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's still tremendous fun to work on. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm -hmm. But it's not my own thing. And I I really still want to work on my own thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And the internet allows me to do it. There are plenty of webcomics out there, but I don't think anybody's done the kinds that I'm doing, which is free of advertising, mm-hmm. and it's it's presented in such a way that you don't have any distraction. Right. Mm. The trade-off for that is it doesn't make me any money. <laughs> okay, there is that. But mm-hmm. it doesn't have to, because TV plays really well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so that brings me up to right now, mm-hmm. where I'm working on a completely new original science fiction story called Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and it's got a different spelling, P-I-T-S-B-E-R-G. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh is the name of an asteroid. Okay. And that's the setting of the story. And it takes place maybe uh, the end of the century, and it's hardcore science fiction, Arthur mm-hmm. C. Clarke style. He's my favorite mm-hmm. author. Right. And it's a multimedia webcomic presentation, which involves comics in two different formats mm-hmm. made specifically for the web, for your internet browser. Mm-hmm. And then a third narrative that's told in video, like an animatic. And mm-hmm. so there's an animated component, and then there's a webcomic component, and then there's going to be a more traditional flip comic component, which I'm going to be adding pretty soon. So you can see it all at pittsburgh.com. Right. It even has a musical soundtrack. Right. 
which wow. is created by a, a very talented friend of mine named Johnny Shiravalo, mm-hmm. who um, I've known for a long time. He's a musician and a singer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's he sort of tracked this project as I was creating it and putting little uh, promos on Facebook and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what? I want to write music for you because I think it would be nice. a lot of fun. Yeah. Hmm. And so suddenly it's even more multimedia than it was before. Right. Yep. And you can see it all at the website, pittsburgh.com. Right. And uh, I expect this is going to keep me busy for probably two or three years. Right. Uh, It's extremely intricate. It's got a a very complicated story Mm -hmm. with a lot of things happening at different levels. There's a political level. There's a sociology level. There's an economic level. There's a fantasy level. Mm -hmm. It all has to do with where we are right now in terms of our global situation, projecting it forward to the end of the century. Right. Which means there's also a very strong ecological uh, component to it. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Earth is a very unpleasant place Mm. in this point in the story. And... Remember, I told you that the setting was an asteroid. There's, mm-hmm. an, there's an asteroid with a, a mine in it. And mm-hmm. Earth has extreme energy needs at this point. So mm-hmm. elements are being mined out of this asteroid and taken back to Earth. And this becomes a vantage point for the collapse of society. Right. So what's happened, if I recall right, it's been, I read this a couple of months ago, wasn't it that they've moved Pittsburgh into Earth orbit? Isn't it just sitting there above the Earth? No, it was uh, it was always there between Earth and Mars. Oh, okay, mm. and it's a piece of a planet that mm-hmm. drifted into the solar system right. sometime in the distant past, and it was captured. Right. Ah, okay, and it's covered with this dark material mm-hmm. that is the same material that they are mining. The asteroid is uh, it's covered in this dark material that prevented it from being discovered mm-hmm. until. Completely out of the blue, it gets hit by a comet. Right. And it blows some of this material off. And suddenly we realize we've got this treasure trove just a a couple of weeks away from Earth. If we Mm. can travel out there and start mining it, we can bring back all the materials we need to supply the Earth with energy. Mm. And so that becomes the scenario for the story that takes place. Right. The people who work at this asteroid mine are very different from the people on Earth because right. they've, they've adapted themselves to new conditions. Mm-hmm. And you'll need to read the story to find out exactly what those adaptations are. Hmm. Um, and then in parallel to this, there mm-hmm. is, believe it or not, mm-hmm. a superhero story. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yep. After all this time, I finally have a superhero story. Okay. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, it relates directly to everything that's happening. It's actually a story lifted out of this world, mm-hmm. and it becomes a third narrative in the mm-hmm. Pittsburgh plot. Right. And so it's as if we're seeing the the uh, Marvel movies of that world right. interpreted in comic book form. Right. Okay, I understand. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Right. So we're seeing their media, basically. Essentially, yes. Yeah, okay. Because... Huh. That's a common complaint, actually, of Dawn's, is that uh, most science fiction, there's no media. Like, mm-hmm. different... I mean, okay, Macross, you know, Japanese stuff accepted, but especially American science fiction, 
these people have no culture, they have no media, they have nothing. They just kind of exist. <laughs> yeah. And I'm glad to see that you've uh, you fixed that. Oh, yeah. Well, media is inescapable. Exactly. And it shapes who we are. It's how we communicate with each other. Exactly, yeah. At so one point, really cool. it was uh, the tool for that used to be mythology, and then it became mm-hmm. religion, and then it became politics, and now it's media. Mm-hmm. And as we uh, free ourselves up from the need to fight for survival, it may become other things, too. It'll become mm-hmm. Pokemon Go. <laughs> I think that already happened. I think it's happening now. <laughs> well, no, that's the first part of the Machine Rebellion. Okay. <laughs> they use the info from Pokemon Go to find out what makes humans tick, and then get us to lock ourselves up in the uh, in the cells. Well, except Pokemon Go makes you go out into the world, Don. That kind of reverses things. For now. For now. It is getting okay. people killed, though. That's true. Mm. Well, some of that's media hype. That some of that actually <laughs> didn't happen. If, if you can go on Snopes and they talk about that, but sure. but but there are people that have walked off cliffs. That's true. There are people mm-hmm. walked off cliffs and walked into traffic because of Pokemon Go. Yep. Yeah, some of that's natural selection, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Don, you had some questions. You said you wanted to ask Tim. Yeah, lay it on me. I got one in particular, and it seems like you'd be a. Uh a good person to answer this. I got to phrase it properly is Nope. That's not it. Um, what, what would it take? Cause you've mentioned, um, you mentioned like for the comics, you mentioned the British, the European, the Japanese, especially what would it take for us to produce a comic or dare I say, uh, animated series that was science fictiony and, and adventurous and serious, and I hate the word adult, so I'll say maybe more grown up, that would get general acceptance by like a North American audience. Well, first of all, you just described Pittsburgh, because that's exactly okay. what I'm doing. Awesome. Um, in terms of acceptance, that is the million dollar question. Mm-hmm. That's what all entertainment media is constantly fighting. How do we mm-hmm. get this in front of people? And the more media expands, the more you have to fight for attention. Mm-hmm. You know, just consider TV for an example. 20 years ago, you could probably count all the networks on two hands. Mm-hmm. Now you can't. Yeah. Now there are hundreds and they're all vying for your attention. Think about the number of movies that are made now, especially like summer blockbuster movies. Back in the 80s, you got maybe three or four. Mm-hmm. Now it's easily a dozen. Yeah. And they're, they're all trying to promote at the same time. So there's an incredible noise level that's much higher and denser than it ever was. And uh, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. In fact, it's probably mm-hmm. just going to get worse. Yep. Because everybody's going to constantly invent new ways to break through the noise, and that's going to create more noise. Mm. So... Mm-hmm. Um, Some of them solve that problem by having things ride on other things. The easiest example would be buy a license to a TV show that used to be popular. Mm -hmm. And that gives you name recognition. So Mm -hmm. if you make a movie based on that old TV show, you can promote it without also having to educate people about what it is. Because there's, there's going to be a level of recognition for it. So that's why we constantly see reboots and remakes and sequels, because nobody wants to try something fresh that they have to then educate the public about. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, 
Disney buying Star Wars was a no-brainer. The entire <laughs> world knows what Star Wars is. Yeah. But if you were trying to sell Disney on Star Blazers... Good luck. Yeah. Mm. Their first uh, question would be, how many people know about it? Wasn't there an attempt by Disney to make a Star Blazers movie or one of the American companies? There was a development deal made back in, uh, I think, 1996, maybe mm -hmm. 95. It was around the time we were doing the initial Star Blazers comic books. Mm -hmm. um, there was a company called Bender Spink, which okay. got a development deal at Disney. Mm -hmm. And they got a script written. And then it was frozen in place for 10 years. Right. And Disney did nothing with the script. Right. Uh, from what I hear about that script, we're all very lucky they made that decision. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of that, uh, the rights reverted back to that company. Mm -hmm. And since then, they changed their name to Skydance. Or at mm -hmm. least they've I, th they've, I think they've allied themselves with a company called Skydance. Right. And now they actually do have a Star Blazers movie in pre-production. Oh, that's oh. awesome. Yes. Maybe. Well, we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, we saw the Japanese one. Let's see what the Americans can do with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the scriptwriter and director are the same guy. Mm -hmm. um, his name is Christopher McQuarrie. Oh, Chris McQuarrie, okay, yeah. Yep, his last big thing was uh, Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm. And um, the latest news on that is that he's got a script, and they're going to be developing that script for the next year, and then... Maybe a year from now, summer 2017, they'll make the official announcement about um, you know who the cast is, when the movie comes out, all that stuff. Right. I think I think they're aiming for 2018, hmm. uh, but obviously that's changeable. Right. Yeah. These things change easily. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But your initial question was the big one: How do you get acceptance? Mm -hmm. um, and I used the word writer uh, because you've got to break through a lot of noise. Yeah, um, mm. it's very helpful to have something to ride on. You know, consider it a raft on the rapids, right? In, in all the churning water, um, and that's how you get people to pay attention. Because within the sea of noise, you know, or maybe river, I could continue with that uh, analogy. Mm -hmm. Something suddenly pokes up out of all the water, you know, and it's a single stable object that you can recognize. It's a rock named Steven Spielberg or <laughs> Star Wars or Spider-Man or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's something you recognize, and it's a point of stability. And so you're going to probably want to swim over to it and grab on and see what mm -hmm. it's all about because there's some safety in that. Mm -hmm. Other people don't want to go that way. They'd, they'd rather stay on the river and just let it knock them around until they find something they like. And that's cool, too. But there are far fewer people willing to do that. You know? right. So how do you reach them? Um, the number one thing you have to do is throw something into that river. Mm -hmm. Some people never get that far. You know, I, In my time working in comics, I looked at a lot of portfolios from artists who wanted to draw comics. But they never actually took the step of drawing a comic book. They just mm -hmm. did pinups. Or right. they they did a page here or a page there without thinking further, you know, how do you develop a story? How do you create a narrative that flows over a few pages? And then how do you balance the pictures in that narrative? You know, getting from mm -hmm. big picture down to little picture and then back out again. It's something that you need to start on very early 
and you have to be driven to do it because it's not easy. Hmm. And it takes a really long time to, to learn how to do it well. So yeah. skills can be another raft. It has hmm. certainly been a raft for me. You know, when I've been on that river and I've bumped into a rock and had that skill set raft under me at the right time, they grabbed me and pulled me up onto it and said, hey, come and work for us. But that's mm. not something everybody can count on. Right. So right. the good news I can give you is that the Internet itself is a raft. I mean, it's the river and the raft at the same time. Mm. It gives you a way to put something into the river. Right. Uh, whether it's a podcast like yours or a blog mm -hmm. or, uh, or a webcomic or your own homemade cartoon or YouTube video or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a way to get out there where it didn't before. Yeah. And of course there are problems aplenty, yep. some <laughs> of which we haven't even discovered yet. Yeah. And there are obstacles everywhere. Uh, net neutrality is itself under fire. Mm, yeah. You know? Fortunately, the, um, the people who want to destroy it seem to have been knocked back for a while. Mm -hmm. And it looks kind of like they've given up, but we can never take that for granted. Um, yeah. Well, we'll see what President Trump does. <laughs> you, mean, you mean Emperor. Emperor Trump. Sorry, sorry. Emperor Trump, yes. The last emperor. <laughs> Ooh. Yes. And everybody makes that nervous laugh at that joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Well, uh, well, Tim, you're always welcome up here in Canada should that come to pass. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. One last final question for you, Tim. So in animation, what is the thing you're most proud of so far? What's the project you've worked on or thing you've done that you're most proud of? Hmm. Well, I w I'll have to disconnect or I'll have to um, discount my Grease Monkey comics because those were so right, exceptional. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the thing that I'm proudest of is what I'm working on right now. Okay. And it sounds like an easy answer because mm. it's Avengers and everybody knows oh, what yeah. it is. Yeah. And it's the current thing. Mm. Um, but it's, I think it's the show that has challenged me the most on a creative level mm -hmm. in terms of uh, how to creatively depict a story. Mm -hmm. um, the scripts are what they are. Mm -hmm. It's written for a younger audience. Yeah. Um, some people will never like it. It already has plenty of detractors. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of meeting a creative challenge, mm -hmm. um, I think this is the work that has given me the most reward. Right. Um, and it's certainly the most difficult and complex show I've ever done because we've got a big group of characters and um, balancing screen time is uh, is a massive undertaking. Yeah, I believe it. Mm -hmm. When I, uh, you guys have seen the Civil War movie, I assume. Yes. Oh, yes. What was your favorite sequence? Probably the airport sequence. Absolutely. Yeah. That's our favorite too. Everybody who works on the Avengers cartoon just marvels at how well that was made. It was incredible. And yeah, we identify so intimately with that particular sequence is because that's what we do all the time. Right. We're constantly <laughs> trying to manage a camera, you know, mm -hmm. and grab a tiger by the tail and try and capture it on film. Mm. Um, making sure that every character gets their spotlight and gets right. their moment. 
mm-hmm. and that the story is constantly moving forward and you're mm-hmm. you're serving all of these different goals and hitting all of these different targets in this sort of running battle. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what my day job is. Yeah. And there are times when it gets exhausting. There are times when it gets really frustrating. Like, uh, if we, uh, work ourselves into a corner and we have to start over on something, mm-hmm. but it's incredibly rewarding. And I think it's something that, uh, I had to work my way up to. Right. I started on the show in 2012, and I, th- I think if it had been offered to me any year prior to that, I wouldn't have been ready for it. Right. Hmm. But all of the experiences that I told you about, and mm-hmm. several more that I didn't, were all something that prepared me for this. Um, and I'm sh- and it shows on screen. It really yeah. does. Yeah. And uh, I can say the same about Pitt's work. All the comic book work that I've ever done including on the publishing side and trying mm-hmm. to deal with distribution and everything led mm-hmm. me to where I am now. Hmm. So I can accurately say the projects I'm doing now are my favorites, hmm. but check with, check back with me in a year or two. <laughs> and we and definitely will. Yeah. I, I may swap out those names for whatever yeah. I'm, I'm doing then. So, yep. Depending. Yeah. I, I just side note, how many episodes per season of the Avengers are you doing? Uh, there are 26 episodes per season, right? and I'm one of two directors, so we okay. each do 13. So you're co-directing. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Tim, I want to say thank you very much. It's been a very educational and fascinating uh, time hearing about your career so far and how everything just came together. That's amazing. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, I really appreciate your interest. I don't get to, to talk this broadly very often. And so when I do, it uh, helps to remind me of uh, how far I've come and where I'm still likely to go. Yeah, you really have. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Mm -hmm. And um, Don, any final thoughts before we go? No, I'm just amazed when you're listening all all the things you've worked on, how many stuff, how many like projects and comics and even like TV shows I've enjoyed that you've actually had a hand in. Well, I'm glad they got to you. Mm, so am I. <laughs> exactly. And so on that note, good night, everyone. Bye. Goodbye, world. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya.